Good morning. Everybody doing okay? You guys good? <laughs> good. Good to see you guys. A couple of things um, before we get into the lesson. First, I was told that I am to push uh, serving at the noon service. We're going to start uh, changing up our service times, doing 8, 10, and 12 uh, here in, in a couple of weeks. And um, we're having a lot of people sign up for the 8, a lot of people sign up for the 10. We have not had as many as we need sign up for the noon service that we're going to be doing. So it takes about 250 people each service to volunteer here. So we need about uh, an extra 250 if we're going to launch a fifth service. So if you um, want to, I would uh, ask you to come March 6th, 6.30 p.m. We'll have an interest meeting and we will launch um, another service here pretty soon. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. And I'm going to, I don't know why I felt, uh, I guess I do kind of know why I felt led to say this, but but um, sometimes I, I feel weird about it. So um, oftentimes after I teach, and today's kind of a heavier lesson. It's, it's been on my heart a lot, and it's the way chapter three ends in John. It just ends on a heavy note, and therefore we end on a heavy note. And so typically right after I teach, I, I get off stage, and I go, I go back to my office, and I just kind of sit and chill because I have to do it again right after that. And soon I'm going to have to do it five times on the weekend. And sometimes, not often, but people make snide remarks, you know, rock star pastor going back to the green room. There is no green room. Um, there's an off, uh, a windowless office that I go to. Uh, but the reason why I do that is, is you know, there's 1,400 people in this room right now, and we do that four times. And I want to make sure that I'm in the right mindset all four times I do it, that I can give every, every group that comes in uh, uh, my best so they can hear the word in a way that honors them. And it's tough sometimes if I'm slipping off the stage and someone stops me and goes, hey, that's, that sermon sucked, you know? Or, uh, hey, my husband just left. Can you help me right now? I can't. I can't. And that's not because I'm antisocial. If you've ever been to a next class, I leave next class at about 11 o'clock at night uh, because I talk to people, you know, for about four hours, literally. And so... Um, it's not that I don't want to talk to you. It's not that I don't want to know you. It's just that on the weekends, my primary function is getting up here in, in the clearest mind that I can and teaching the word of God to the best of my abilities with God's grace and help. So just thank you for your understanding on that. So if you see me dart off, it's not because I'm better than anyone else or think that I am. It's, it's because I, I, I have a lot on my mind sometimes and I want to make sure that I deliver this to the best of my abilities. So anyways, I just wanted to say that because um, people have gotten their feelings hurt before. And so I just want to let you know, it's, it's not you, it's me. So uh, <laughs> um, all that being said, we are in the Gospel of John. If you have not been here, this is a book written in the first century, not only by one of Jesus's 12 disciples, but one of his closest three disciples, um, the beloved disciple, the Bible says, John calls himself the beloved disciple. Um, written in the first century, written primarily for people who were not raised in a religious home. So these were written primarily for Greeks, for Romans, for non-Jews, which most of us would fall into that category. If you weren't here last week, we did the first half of chapter three, which is, is of the utmost importance. Maybe the entire center of the word of God lies in the middle of chapter three, and that's in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever will believe in him will not die but have everlasting life that pretty much encompasses the entire theme of the Bible right there. And so we talked about that. And then what we, what we also talked about was this, is that we have two paths kind of to take, either flesh or spirit, you know, life or death. And if we do it our way, um, it is not working. And so we talked about this last week. If we objectively step back and are the ways of mankind making mankind better? I think anyone who wants to see reality would say, no, it's not working. So if that's not working, there needs to be, a, the logical response would be to try a different path. And that is the, the, the pathway that God has laid out for us. What we're gonna talk about today, and we don't have much to cover. We're starting in verse 22 of chapter three, and we're just gonna do two parts. But we end on a, on a very, very heavy note. And here's what we're gonna talk about today that one day every single one of us in this room will have to give an account straight to God on how we lived our life. We live in a culture right now that, that is anti-consequence. We never talk about consequence. We never talk about 
the fact that one day we're going to have to pay for the decisions we make. Well, we can say that all we want in our society and in our culture, but the truth remains, we will all have to give an account for the choices we've made and how we have lived this life. And again, it's a heavy message, it's a serious message, but it is extremely important uh, that we take it to heart this morning, all right? So you should've got a notes handout. You guys are like, man, Corey is a downer today. <laughs> you should've got a notes handout when you walked in, has everything I'm gonna say in that. Everything will be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, uh, just get the, the Experience Community app, click on Sermon Notes, you got everything right there, okay? If you have one of these things, this is a book. This particular one is called the Bible. If you have one of these, these still exist, books and Bibles. Uh, we are in the fourth book of the New Testament. We're in the third chapter. We're starting in verse 22. I'm gonna pray, and then we will jump in this. And um, yeah, we'll see where God takes us, okay? Let me pray. Father God, we love you. <sighs> Lord, I pray that you keep your hand on all of us this morning, Lord. I thank you, God, that we can come into this place, that we can worship you freely, that we can sing and break open the, the Bible and hopefully, God, know more about you and get closer to you. So, Lord, I just pray that you bless our church. We don't just pray for our church this morning. We pray for every single church in our city if they're teaching the truth. We pray for our other campuses and the churches in those cities. We pray for the fantastic nonprofits that we get to partner with, Lord, this month, partnering with very, very important nonprofits who work with pregnancy support. And God, we just pray at the end of everything we do today, just like, just like John is gonna write this morning, I pray that it is less about us and more about you, that we glorify you, God, that the attention is on you, that we are not just consumers, God, but we are contributors to your kingdom. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm gonna read a little bit and we'll go back and break it down, okay? After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete he must increase, but I must decrease. So the second half of chapter three talks a little bit more about a guy that we've already been introduced to named John the Baptist. He baptized a lot of people, kind of prepared the way for Jesus to come. The transition that is taking place and that John wanted to take place is all the people that were following him, he wants to transition them over to them being Jesus's disciples. So what happened was this, competition started to arise between two camps who were fighting for the same goals. There was competition from John's disciples and Jesus's disciples, and neither one of these men, John and Jesus, got along just fine, but their followers fought over which camp is better. Now, when we read about that, you and I can kind of understand what's going on because we have tons of competition between people who are trying to get to the same place right here in the good old South in the United States. Well, I'm Lutheran, I'm better than you because you're Catholic. No, 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 I'm non-denominational, so I'm much better than you because you're Baptist. And well, we play our music this way and we don't play music at all and we dress like this and well, we dress this way and we see this and we can sit back and we can totally understand what competition amongst followers of Christ looks like. You know what else I hope we can understand and, and see is that it's really stupid. Somebody? Listen, if we agree on the majors of the faith, 
Jesus is the exclusive way to the Father. If we believe in baptism and repentance and the Holy Spirit, if we believe that we are to bless the community and go out and evangelize and make disciples and the Great Commission, if we can agree on the big things, we need to let the small things go. Well, well, Corey, I'm a Calvinist. Well, Corey, I'm an Arminianist. Nice to meet you, I'm just a follower of Jesus. And I don't have time. You know what we've done as Christians? We have bickered so much about who is the greater one among us when there's all these people out in this world who haven't even heard who Jesus is yet because Christians are too busy squabbling amongst themselves on social media. That is stupid. And it is not condoned by Christ or any true follower of Christ. Take that time that you're doing to argue with your cousin who's a different denomination and go out and tell someone who doesn't even know who Jesus is who the Messiah is. Is that okay? I hear, I hear a helicopter. They're already looking for us. Calvinist above us right now. So, so John, John and, and Jesus' baptisms were different. John baptized people as a sign of repentance. He's basically saying, come and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Post the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we are baptized in a response to forgiveness. So John's baptism was one of forgiveness. We ask for Jesus to forgive us and we are saved and we are baptized as a response to our salvation. So John's baptism was a preparation for Jesus. Our baptism is, is much more than that. It is much more complex. So we should desire baptism. And people ask me all the time, Corey, do you have to be baptized? Well, I know that you have to be obedient to Jesus. And Jesus said, this is how we fulfill righteousness is to do what he tells us to do. And he set the example by being baptized himself. Now, I think we are saved before we are baptized, but in our obedience to our salvation, we are baptized. We're saying to the world around us, we are following Jesus Christ. And when we are obedient to Jesus Christ, and part of that being baptism, the Bible says we are buried with Christ and raised to a new life. That's the whole symbolism of baptism. You go under the water, it looks like a burial. You come out of the water, it looks like a resurrection. Through baptism, we're initiated into the family of God, and we, we, we are given the promise that the Holy Spirit will activate the gifts in our life and the fruit in our life. That was the first sermon that Peter ever teaches in Acts chapter 2. Again, the problem, though, was this. John's disciples, John's disciples put more emphasis on John than they did in the one that John was trying to teach them about. And again, we see this a lot today in our day and age, especially in American Christianity. We have too many leaders, I'm gonna put pastors in air quotes, we have too many leaders that get up on stages and they're way too comfortable with the affirmation of people. And they become celebrities, right? And they become, they become idols to people and people have to travel to just hear this person speak and too few pastors deflect that attention and give the credit to Christ. And there are too many congregants who rely too heavily on a man or a woman. Now listen, we need godly leaders. That's biblical. We need good elders, we need good deacons, we need good pastors and evangelists and teachers and prophets. We need those things. But your ultimate authority is always the word of God. And this is why I tell you, and this is why we teach the way we do in this church, do not just take my word for it. Because someone can be charismatic and draw a big crowd and they can tell you things that are antithetical to the Bible and it will mislead you and it will damage you. So don't just take my word for it. If I teach you something from up here, make sure that you are reading along with me in the scripture. Make sure that you are studying on your own as well because I'm flawed and I may tell you something that's incorrect. And so you need to make sure that you are, you are holding the Bible as your final authority, not me. I hope to aid you in that. I hope to be a good shepherd to you if you consider me your pastor. But ultimately, we need to be following Christ and the authority of the word. And so John the Baptist is such a good example. He's such a good example of a follower and he's such a good example of a leader simultaneously. He's a great example as a follower because he fully submitted to God, 
regardless of the pressures and the attention he got from the world, he could have been quite the cult leader, John the Baptist, but he was in submission to God. So he was not tempted by the things of the world. And then he was also not tempted by religious legalism. And we live, you and I, in the same tension. We are often pursued by the allure of the things of the world, fame, fortune, affirmation, attention, whatever comes with that. Or we are sometimes tempted to just be religious because quite honestly, religion is much easier than relationship. If I can just make a checklist and check it off, that's easy. But to be in a relationship is much more difficult. And we need to not do either one of these things. We don't need to pursue self and we don't need to pursue just rules. And so as a leader, when attention was put on John the Baptist, what does he do? He says, I'm not the one you're looking for. It is the groom that receives the bride. You're the bride of Christ, not the bride of John. You're the bride of Christ. And John says, it's not me that you're looking for. I am just a groomsman. I'm just hanging out with the groom until he gets married to the bride. And he gives us probably the defining thesis of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If someone asks, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is a good answer. He has to increase and I must decrease. It must be more about him and less about me. Well, I'm going to church to get my blessings. I'm going to church to get this. I'm going to church. You're not here just for you. Now, don't get me wrong. You need to be filled up. You need to be poured into, but not for the sake of just continually being a consumer. We are poured into so we can go out and be a distributor of the kingdom of God. It is to be about his kingdom and not my kingdom. To be saved, to be changed, to be sustained. We must be utterly dependent on Christ not just dependent on Christ when you can't pay the bills, but dependent on him every single day. We should wake up with a, with a mindset that says, God, thank you for another day. I have not earned it. Thank you for this. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that we are utterly dependent that the reason why I have blood coursing through my veins and air in my lungs is because God is gracious enough to let me have those things. Utterly dependent on him, okay? So the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard and no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words since he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So verse 31 refers to, to, to two different individuals. It refers to Jesus, who is the one who is from above. Jesus himself said he descended from heaven. So he was above everything. The one who is on the earth is John, and that could actually be any of us or any leader. What John is saying is this. If we follow people, people have a limited perspective because they're on the earth. I think you know that you're on the earth. You're on the earth and we can only see things from an earthly vantage point. We have a limited vantage point because we're ground level. John says that's not the case with Jesus. Jesus is above all. He's the creator of all. Not only is he above all from a geographical standpoint where he can see everybody, he is above all and he sees all of time. He sees how everyone's life is going to play out. He sees everything from the beginning and the end. He sees everything. So why would we put our trust in someone who is limited to a ground level perspective when we can put our trust into one who is above all things and sees all things and knows all things? Our problem is this though. I'm not saying this is your particular problem, but this is the problem in our society, in our culture. 
We are a society that makes idols out of everything. Our big one now is identity and individuality. That's our idol right now in the United States. We are idol makers. And we have become a culture that worships the individual. We worship the self. You can study it. It's, it's in all kinds of university studies right now. The, the amount of people who believe in any God, any theistic idea is declining at a rapid pace. And the fastest demographic, demographic of people growing in the United States right now are atheists or nuns, they call them, N-O-N-E-S, non-believers. And so I'm not just talking about a belief in Jesus, I'm talking about a belief in any kind of God that is declining at the most rapid rate ever and non-belief is, is, is increasing in the most rapid rate. So the God of the United States is not Krishna or Vishnu or any of the Eastern philosophical teachers like Buddha or Confucius. Well, our God in the United States is, is us. And we oftentimes make ourselves into little G gods. But to the one, this is my whole lesson last week, to the one who wants to see reality, to the one who has, has ears to hear and eyes to see, it is no wonder that we are imploding because again, we are limited. We have a very finite view of what is going to happen. So we as humans, you as an individual or any human leader, we can only go so far and the furthest length that we can go as humans is still short of anything good. How can you say that? Because the Bible says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. So anything good that we think we're producing is just because God has given us enough grace to produce such a thing, whether we believe it or not. So mankind alone can never hit the mark. And so John the Baptist, and I'm sure John the author, were both like, what the heck? If anyone should have known this, it should have been the Jews. And John exaggerates a little bit. There are several exaggerations in the Bible, and I gotta be careful saying that. There are times like there's a prophet in the Old Testament who says, I am the only righteous man left. He wasn't the only one left, but he was the only one that he knew of. John the Baptist says, no one accepted the testimony of Jesus. Well, people did accept the testimony of Jesus. He was exaggerating to say it feels like no one is. More people should have accepted this anticipated savior. Those who did accept Jesus, this is very important. Those who did accept Jesus were the people who were looking for the prophecies of the Bible to be fulfilled. They were expecting the promises of the Bible to come to fruition. Now, we have already received the promised savior, that is Jesus, but there are a ton more promises in the Bible. And you and I as Christians, I think we fail to go back and read the word of God and understand that there are a lot of conditional promises, which means if we do this, God will do this for us. And if we will submit to him and if we will pray and if we will reach out to him, God has promised us things like joy, things like peace, things like self-control. That's still a word in America, isn't it? two words, I guess, but anyways, <laughs> that we are promised things like this. But the problem with us as, as Christians is we are not expectant of the promises of the Bible. But we have two things to help us. One, we have the word of God. Not enough people read this book. We have the word of God and the word of God gives us the truth. What is the truth? What is right and wrong? It's all written down right here. This is the truth. And along with the truth, we have the spirit of God that Jesus gives us, as the Bible says, without measure. And that gives us wisdom, that gives us counsel, that gives us comfort, gives us the power of God. And to properly worship God, and the reason why so many more of us don't see the promises of God unfold in our life, is we are worshiping God incorrectly. How dare you, Corey, I worship God however I want. Then you're doing it wrong. Because the Bible says we worship God in spirit and in truth. This means we worship God with our feelings, with our emotions, with our heart, with our spirit. The problem is people go, well, I go to a spirit-filled church. Well, that's wonderful. It's actually quite a cocky thing to say because you're saying all these other churches don't have the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty arrogant thing to say. But we say it's all spirit here. Well, listen, if it's all heart, and no head, it's gonna be chaos eventually. Mark my words. Yeah. 
It's the book of 1 Corinthians. That's what it's about. If it's all feelings and emotions, it's gonna get squirrely and it's gonna get crazy real fast. Paul says they're gonna think you're mad when they walk into your house of worship, if it's all spirit. But we need the spirit. We need to worship God with our feelings, our heart, our emotions. But we balance that out with the word of God. Let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never act or tell you anything contradictory to this book. And so we need not just the spirit, we need the truth as well. We need the truth of the word of God. Here's the problem though, if a church is just all truth, it becomes stale and legalistic and they suppress the Holy Spirit and they don't think the Holy Spirit is active anymore and that goes against that book actually. So we have to find that sweet space in the middle. We worship with our heart, we worship with our emotions, we balance that with the truth of the word of God. We worship God with our brains as well. Verse 31 through 35 give us what's called Christology. Sounds really, really fancy, but it's really, really not. All it is is when you're talking about the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, Spirit, Christology is is kind of honing in and defining what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And this is a pretty good working definition. If someone asks, who is Jesus? This is a pretty good working definition. Jesus is the Son of God, yet Jesus is also God. He is above all. He gives truth to those who are willing to accept it and hear it. He gives the Holy Spirit to us to to sustain us until he returns and then Jesus will usher into eternal life. That is Jesus in a nutshell. That is Christology. So when you're at lunch today with one of your friends, you can impress them and be like, just talked about, I was thinking about Christology today. And they're like, ooh, what a theologian you are, right? You can blow them away, impress your friends. And the one who believes in Christ, the one who believes in the Son, we understand, and this is also very important, and maybe the most offensive thing in the entire Bible, that Jesus is the exclusive key to not only knowing God, not only experiencing lasting change in this life, Jesus is the only pathway by which we are eternally saved. There is absolutely no other way. There's no other way. Let me tell you, if you call yourself a Christian, there is no room for ambiguity in the life of a real Christian. If I say that I follow Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one gets to the Father except through me, I cannot call myself a follower of Jesus if I think there are many spokes that lead to the same center hub. That is antithetical to that word. There are no other gods except for the true God. Any approach to salvation and lasting fulfillment is futile without Jesus. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. You know the whole point of Genesis chapter one? I know it's the creation story and it tells us about that. People argue, this is another one of these issues that that Christians argue about and I think it's really a waste of time. How old is the earth? How old is the universe? Is it literal seven days? Is it a figurative seven days? The whole point of Genesis one is not for us to determine how old the earth and the universe is. The whole point of Genesis chapter one, it was written in a time when there was a pluralistic multiplicity of gods that people worshiped. One for the sun, one for the moon, one for the water, one for travel, one for all these different things. And the whole point of Genesis chapter one is, is it says, no, 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 there is one God that created the heavens and the earth. There is one God that created mankind, there is one. That is the whole point of Genesis chapter one. It's not for us to pin down the the date or the expanse of time, but to know how many gods are there? There's just one, and he created all things. So some would say though, well, Corey, you're talking about this loving God, and if I follow Jesus Christ, that I will have eternal life. And then it ends with this very kind of uh, ominous, heavy statement but those who do not accept Christ will suffer the wrath of God. And you would say, well, how can a loving God have wrath? Well, listen, without justice, there can be no true love. Without justice, there can be no true righteousness. If someone murders your spouse and the government just says, well, we're just gonna let it go. That is not love. That is injustice, that is evil. So there cannot be goodness, there cannot be mercy, there cannot be justice unless evil is held into account. Now, God is perfect love, and in that love, there must be discipline. Jesus even goes on to say further on in the New Testament that I discipline you because I love you. So listen, God is merciful. 
God is slow to anger. We will not understand how slow to anger God is on this side of eternity. God, and we won't understand his mercy on this side of eternity. But, but let me tell you this, and here we're gonna start going down a serious path here in a second. Though God is merciful and slow to anger, there is going to come a time where God is going to have his fill. There is going to come a time when Christ is gonna look down and he's gonna see how abused his bride is and he's gonna say, we're done, we're done. We don't think about eternity much anymore, do we? We can't see beyond ourselves quite often, especially in our culture, to think about things like eternity, to think about things like one day we will be held into account. But some of us say, well, we step back and go, yeah, that's right, Jesus is gonna deal with evil. Good thing I'm a good person. Who defines good? Who determines if you're good or not? Let me tell you, in my time of being a pastor, which has only been 14 years, this is probably a very low number. I bet I've done well over 100 funerals in those 14 years. That may be a very low estimate. Can I tell you something about funerals? No one believes in hell at funerals. I've done funerals for atrocious people, awful people people who've cheated on their wives. I, I have done funerals for people who have tried to commit murder. I have done funerals for people who swindled and treated people terribly. And when I get there, they'll do a thing. I always, when I do those kind of uh, funerals, I just preach the gospel. I, ba I basically don't say anything about that individual. I preach the gospel. And then after that, they'll have people come up and they'll say, oh man, old Billy, you know, he beat his wife and I mean, he was addicted to heroin, but he's a good old boy though. And by, by what standard was he good? By what, listen, there is no your truth and my truth. There is no your standard and my standard. There's just the standard. There is just the truth. And the standard of what is good and evil isn't set by the creation. It is set by the creator. If we all have our own standards for what is good and evil, I think it's good to, to, to break into your house at night and steal all of your belongings because I don't make that much money. That's probably not good for you, but it's good for me. Do you know what self-righteousness is? It is the, the, the apex of hypocrisy. It always eats its own tail. There has to be a universal standard. And who sets that? The one who created the universe. God has provided clarity. Well, Corey, then what is good and evil? It's all right here. It is all right here. The two problems are this. One, there's a lot of us who don't have any desire to really know what is right and wrong. Well, Corey, if I've been sinning my whole life, but I just didn't know it was wrong, is God gonna condemn me of that? It's right here. And this is the most readily available book. If you go to any bookstore in town, There'll be 25 different translations in every single color and you can get it with a women's study version or a men's study version. You can get all these fancy notes and maps and all kinds. There's no excuse. There's an app that you can get on your phone for free that will read you the whole dang book. You don't even have to read pages anymore. The question is, will we search for the truth? And when we find the truth, will we believe the truth over our own feelings? And here's the thing with feelings, feelings can be good liars. Feelings make wonderful slaves, they make terrible masters. Feelings can deceive you. Where do you get that from? Good old book, Jeremiah 17, nine. It is the most deceptive thing about you, your heart. And this is a direct copy and paste from last week if you weren't here. Well, then you would say, well, who defines good and evil? Well, and then how could a loving God send us to hell? We, our afterlife is simply an extension of everything we've wanted in this life. If we have lived this entire life saying, I can do it without you, I'm gonna do it my way. At the end of our life, God says, I'm going to give you an eternity without me anywhere present because that's what you've always wanted. If we have lived our life, even in our imperfection, if we have lived our life striving to get to know him better, God will reward us in the afterlife with an eternity of not just getting to know him better. If we strive to know God more in this life, do you know what your eternity be? You, you, what it will be? Heaven, the glory of heaven is not streets of gold. 
It's not pearly gates. It's not beautiful isotropic stones. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 21, that the lights hit and it beams every color of the rainbow. That is not heaven. The heaven is not, heaven is not the tree of life and a beautiful crystal stream that reads to it. That's not the beauty of heaven. The beauty of heaven is not only will I get to see God, I'll, I'll be able to touch him. I'll be able to walk with him. I'll be able to ask him questions. The beauty of heaven is, is that I will get to see the face of Christ. And if we have lived our life in a manner to where we have wanted to know him more, our eternal reward is, come walk with me. Come talk with me, literally. Not figuratively, not spiritually. He's gonna be right next to me. And I'm gonna get to talk to him. If we are going to get there though, it has to be less of us and more of him. Do you know what the Bible says in Proverbs? The beginning of all wisdom is a fear of the Lord. The beginning, I'm gonna rephrase it. The beginning of all wisdom is acknowledging that there is something bigger than us. That is the beginning of all wisdom, is acknowledging that I am not the greatest thing in the universe. There is something that created me that is, that is bigger than me. The Bible says only a fool would say that there is no God. The beginning of wisdom is acknowledging that there is a God. The beginning of all understanding is knowing that that God is Jesus. And so the life of the Christian, if we call ourselves a Christian, we must say it is less about us and it is more about him. It's not just coming to church when our wife leaves and we're trying to get her back. It's not just coming to church so we can pray about that job situation. It's coming to church, learning how we can get to know him better so we can pour back into his kingdom. Not just build mine, but help build his. To advance it, to bless the world around us. It must be more about him and less about me. You know, it's interesting. We live in a society today where we're all trying to be like, man, I'm just trying to figure out me. I'm just trying to learn me. You will never know who you are unless you know who your creator is first. Listen, how can you ever know your identity unless you believe in the one that you are made in the image of? It has to be him first. He must increase. We must decrease. And let me tell you, that may be the most countercultural thing you can possibly do. It goes against everything, your favorite television shows and advertising and social media. It is all about us. It's about the attention for us. It's about building my wealth and, and living in that neighborhood and, and obtaining these things and having this title on my name. And for us to say, I don't wanna make it about me. I don't care what all those ads say in the middle of the big game. I don't care what every, every musician says. It's not about me. It's about something much greater than me. Not only is that countercultural, it is hard because you are swimming upstream. But we are called to obedience. We are called to be dependent. Not because Jesus Christ is a dictator, not because you have to, you have a choice. But we should know that he loves us. He wants what's best for us. And quite frankly, if we call ourselves a Christian especially, we should want to live a life that honors him. Whenever people ask me questions like, well, Corey, do you have to go to church? Do you have to be baptized? Listen, Christ didn't have to be nailed to a cross. But by his love, he was. And if attending church once a week and getting baptized once and reading my Bible and gleaning the wisdom and beauty from it and being able to speak to him, maybe I don't have to do those things, but freak, man, I really want to. Christ died for me because he loves me. And I should want to live in a way that honors that. But again, a lot of us say, well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Who defines that? Do we live in obedience? Do we rely on the Holy Spirit? And do we rely on the word of God to lead us regardless of our feelings? 
regardless of our ideas, regardless of our excuses. Well, Corey, you don't know how hard my life has been. Maybe I don't, but I know that the Holy Spirit is bigger than your scars. Well, do you know what I've been through? You don't know what I've been through. But God does, and his blood is thicker. It covers up those things. It delivers. It changes. It sets the captive free. If we don't believe that, what's the point of this? You could be working in your yard right now. You could be doing something else. But in an anchorless world that is absolutely falling apart, we have to hold on, listen, not just to the truth of that word. We need to be holding on to that with all the strength we have. Not only do we need to be holding on to the truth of the word of God, we need to be holding on to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you know I have gotten emails over the years that say, we're not coming anymore because I felt so convicted. You wanna know a good solution to conviction? Stop sinning. That's a good one. Do, do you know what conviction is? It's similar to pain. No one likes conviction. The reason why God designed your body to feel pain, because if you put your hand on a burning hot stove, it hurts a lot. Then that's your body saying, take your hand off or you're gonna lose the hand. Conviction is the same way. When I do things that contradict what the spirit inside of me wants to do, I feel bad. And that is a warning sign saying, you're off the track. Get back on. Thank God for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for it. It is what leads us in the right direction. Jesus doesn't condemn, but he does convict. And we should thank him for that. If we do not hold on to the word of God, if we do not listen to the conviction that the spirit is giving us, we will end up in chaos. Chaos. Here is the other thing. Well, people say, well, God loves everybody. I believe that. I believe he does love everyone. That does not mean that everyone will be saved. That's an unfortunate truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. It is not God's will, the Bible says, that any go to hell, but some will. Salvation is a gift. It is free. It is presented by God. Jesus presents us with salvation, but it is not enough for him to just offer it. We must get up and we must receive it. This is why the Bible says that he stands at the door and he knocks, but we have to open the door. We do that through our genuine faith, by believing in him and by living in a relationship with him. So for those who follow Christ, for those who give their life to Christ, we inherit eternal life with Christ. For those to choose to live pursuing self. Let me pause there for a second. There is a real big false, of sense of secu false sense of security with a lot of Christians. They believe if I gave my life to Jesus when I was 13 at a camp and I've lived the rest of my life for myself that I'm okay. That is not biblical. That is not biblical. If we have lived for ourselves and, and it becomes increasingly about us and decreasingly about God, the word of God says, the wrath of God remains on us. The wrath of God, what does that mean? The wrath of God is his righteous anger for evil, for injustice. And again, we're quick to say, well, I'm no Adolf Hitler. I'm no Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm not a racist. I'm not a misogynist. I haven't cheated on my wife. Have you ever lusted? Same thing. Well, I've never committed murder. You ever had hate? Same thing. It's just according to Jesus. And we step back in our self-righteousness and we compare ourselves to each other. The problem is, is when we compare ourselves to this true standard, which is Christ, you have fallen short. And every single one of us who have sinned, which is every single one of us in this room, have disrespected God's holiness. And if we do not repent of that sin, if we do not live in a relationship with Christ, we have placed ourselves in a position of God's wrath. And God does not want that for any of us. But there will come a time when all of us in this room will have to give an account for how we've lived. If you don't believe me, I'm gonna read you something. 
And it's straight from the same person that wrote everything that we read today, okay? It says this. Then I saw a great white throne and one was seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and there was no place found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And any of those whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. The same disciple that wrote the gospel of John was given a vision by Jesus Christ himself warning us, imploring with us. Do you know what this means? If you are on the fence, you've got to get off the fence. It will not save you. It is being double-minded. Jesus himself said, no man can serve two masters. We cannot serve the world and serve Jesus simultaneously. It is impossible. There's some of you in this room some of us in this room who think because we clock into church once a week, if the weather's not too nice or too bad, if there's no game going on, we'll clock in. We have this false perception that that's going to save our soul. Religion cannot save your soul. We think dropping a check every once in a while in the box or saying a prayer before we eat our food. We must have a relationship with him. We must get to know our Savior. And if we choose to live for ourselves, if we choose to constantly consume and make it about us, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to manipulate you. Do I believe in God's grace? Of course I do. But there is going to come a time, according to the Bible itself, that says we will stand in front of the great white throne of judgment and there will be two books. There will be one, there will be a book written just about me. And then there will be the book of life. And the book that is written just about me, if I have lived for myself, and if I have not felt conviction or responded to conviction and repented of the evil I have done, I'm gonna be held into account for every word and deed. And it will be recorded and I'll have to give an answer for it. But if I have lived in a relationship with Christ, if I have repented for the evil I have done, the Bible says every sin that we have done that we have repented for is cast into the deep sea, the Bible says. It says that it is far from us as the east is from the west. How do you even calculate such a distance? And we will not have to answer for those things because those things have been forgotten. They have been erased by the blood of Christ. But if we do not live in a relationship with him, I don't know how to keep saying the same thing over and over again, but there are some people in this church who need to start taking their life seriously. There are some people in this church, and I love you all, but there are some of you who are dabbling in evil. You think you can manage it. You think you can have this thing on the side, clock in once a week, and that it's all gonna be okay, and you are living in a false sense of security. Some of us need to wake up. We need to wake up. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you are in this room and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Rachel's gonna be up here. Listen, if, if, if you're questioning, if you're seeking, Please don't be embarrassed or ashamed or afraid. We were all in that position. Just come up here and see if we can help you get some answers. There will also be people on each side of the stage if you need prayer for anything in your life. If you're struggling, you are in the least judgmental church that you will ever walk into. 
Let someone pray with you. If you need to get it off your chest, please let someone pray with you. It can be for anything. The last thing is this, all the way around this room where you see a lamp on a table and then on most of the posts, there is communion. Listen, that bread and wine represent your only hope. Your only hope of life change, your only hope of freedom and joy and peace and contentment, your only hope for eternity lies in the fact that Jesus Christ gave his body and blood to save us. And I tell you this every week, but before you take that communion, you have to make sure that there is no sin in you. And that's easy. We just say, God, examine my heart. And if there is anything within me, God, that is evil or wrong, show it to me. Let me ask for forgiveness of that. And God instantly forgives us. I say all that to say this, there is not any reason right now in this room today that any of us have to leave this building with any question of where we're gonna go for eternity, with any question of where we stand with God. We can be forgiven, we can start to be restored. It just takes us going, God, shine the light on my heart in the darkest chambers of my heart and forgive me for anything I've done wrong. And he's quick to forgive. My God, I love you. <sighs> Father, I don't know when you're going to come back, Lord. I don't know if it'll be a thousand years from now or if it'll be next week. But Lord, I know that evil on earth is increasing. And I know that you're only going to take so much. I pray, Father, not for some person out in a distant area, God, I don't, I'm not praying for their evil to be addressed, Lord. But pray, I pray this morning, God, that you will address the evil that might be in me. Lord, I pray that you examine my heart, God. I pray that I am humble enough to, to acknowledge that I make mistakes, God, and I ask for your forgiveness, Lord. And I pray, Father, that everyone in this room will be wise enough this morning to make sure that they leave this place forgiven and whole, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. And we long to see you one day face to face. God, touch everyone in this room, Lord. Keep us safe, Lord. Pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. You're welcome to help yourself. Take your time. Make yourself at home.